This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm your host, Jeremy Bergeron, the Vice President of Media Strategy at Mission.org. And this is the show where twice a week, you'll get VIP access into the hearts and minds of some of the most influential marketers in the world. On Marketing Trends, we'll do two things. We'll go deep on a human level, and we'll go even deeper on the nitty gritty of what makes for the most successful marketers and strategies today. I'm glad you're here. Now let's get into it. Athletes are constantly striving to find their unfair advantage, and most businesses are no different. It's one tangible thing that sets us apart from our peers that makes us stand out. In the late 1980s, Nike searched for their unfair advantage and found it in Michael Jordan and the Jumpman brand. Apple was floundering in a market dominated by its competitors until they brought Steve Jobs back into the fold, and the rest is history. Marketing in a crowded segment, such as consumer packaged goods, those unfair advantages are few and far between. Brad Sharon knows what it's like to battle those brands flexing their unfair advantage. Brad has fought an uphill climb during his days at Under Armour and now as the CEO of Aloha. He's bringing the heat to its competitors. There's a lot of choices we make in terms of what goes into our product and our food. And that choicefulness, we bring that forward in our messaging. We talk about being the only plant-based company that is 100% certified organic, that's B Corp certified. It's good marketing to try to differentiate yourself. It also just happens to be true, even better. With hot spaces in general, the people on the margins are gonna try to get into space. It's smart business for them. That does not mean it's the most authentic. And in our case, our advantage is that we're walking the talk. And the challenge is how do you get that message across in a very cluttered environment? As a newly certified B Corp, Aloha is making waves as a business that's committed to the greater good. And their messaging reflects that. On this episode of Marketing Trends, I sat down with Brad and we discussed a host of topics, including why, after a long and successful run as a marketer, he decided to take up the reins as a CEO. Brad also touched on his past experiences with companies such as Under Armour, Chobani, and the role data plays in a marketer's strategy, and why Aloha is an all-in-one omni-channel. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Your content is at the heart of what you do. It connects your company to others, teaches them, guides them, and inspires them. But creating, managing, and editing content at scale is often very chaotic and difficult. Empower your content teams with Brightspot Content Management System, made specifically for marketers and corporate communications leaders. No more waiting for a developer to have to piece things together. Put the power to create and deliver powerful yet complex digital experiences into the hands of your marketers with a comprehensive suite of ready-to-use tools and functionality. Bring a bright spot to your tech stack, your customers, your team, with the Brightspot content management system. Visit brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to learn more. 
All right, everybody, welcome to Marketing Trends. This is your host, Jeremy Bergeron. Today, I'm super honored. We have Brad Sharon, CEO of Aloha, on the show today. It's real. Brad, how are you? Hey, Jeremy. How are you, man? Dude, I'm awesome, man. Good to connect with you. We were just talking about uh, the amazing adventure that is of fatherhood. And I think there's some sort of a, uh, there's a parallel between fatherhood and growing businesses. And I'm still kind of unpacking that myself, but um, it's just an honor to connect with another fellow dad and another guy who's really up to some cool things in your space. So super excited, man. I just want to, for our audience, you know, of other CMOs and marketing leaders really across the Fortune 1000 that listen to this, let's kind of share some context on kind of who Brad is, just the, the easy stuff of like kind of where are you from, big family, like kind of background. I'm a native Midwesterner. Uh, uh, I was born in Ohio. Uh, my father was a Procter & Gamble executive. So I have CPG in the blood, so to speak. Got it. Uh, but moved around a bunch. Uh, spent the most of my time in Minnesota, which is where I, I spent my formative years. Developed a love of hockey, uh, of tubing down a river, and and I'm not afraid of winter. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, professionally, I, you know, I, uh, I've lived in a bunch of different places, Maryland, Texas. So I lived four years in the Netherlands. Uh, launching Lucky Brand wow. jeans uh, to Europe, the Rush, Russia and the Middle East, my favorite brand probably of all time. And then just been fortunate to work with some great entrepreneurs uh, over the course of my career, founders, entrepreneurs, and finally four years ago, decided to become one myself. Wow. So you, so you said your, your dad was at P&G um, early days, and then you, I saw you spent some time there as well. So let's, let's start there. I mean, I think it was an internship there, right? Yeah, when you yeah, were at yeah. just after Procter & Gamble had bought them. So interesting okay. to see, obviously, how a big, big, uh, massive, successful company integrates a big, massive, successful company. See how cultures merge or don't merge, uh, and then obviously, uh, as you're starting out in your career, it's a choice of you know, there's, there's a lot of decision trees. Which path do I want to go down? And so, obviously, thinking about it from a uh, trying to understand uh, the work and how to how to be a good marketer, but but also trying mm -hmm. to figure out where's the right path for you and how do you shepherd your career along the way. That's huge. What are what's maybe a, what's a takeaway if you reflect on your time at PNG, kind of being exposed to that? That's a really big acquisition. That's an exciting time to be a part of a a really cool brand. And just in terms of the things you get exposed to and the trenches you get thrown into, what are some things that you remember from from back in those days that really maybe still stick with you even today as a CEO of Aloha? PNG's got a great model. It's classical. It's C's and P's. It's all the stuff you were you read in books, and and they march to you know th there is a set playbook. And uh, and it works. Uh, big brands, multi-category, international, uh, a lot of people, uh, and a lot of people trying to contribute. You know, I was it was an interesting time. I was in my first year of business school, looking for an internship. I wanted to stay in Boston, where I went to school. Uh, and uh, and and Gillette's one of those iconic brands. You know, you remember the old shaving commercials, and you remember the. Uh, I mean, they're big players in sports marketing. I, I was a former athlete. Uh, and so being in the world of sports and sports advertising is really, really sexy. Um, but I got to see, you know, how they evaluate businesses. I learned what a P&L was. I mean, they didn't know how to run one, didn't know how to read one. But I learned that that there was these two letters together with an ampersand in the middle. And I just tried to act smart. Um, failed, but tried to. And so, um, uh, and, and then it was really interesting to see how cultures clash. Uh, I mean, not everyone got along back then. Uh, you know, imagine the Gillette people just being bought for a big number, not asking me to be bought, you know, the people I was dealing with. Mm -hmm. They knew their stuff and they had their own way of operating. And then these folks in Cincinnati who have their own other way of operating come in and say, well, this is the new model. And there's this new thing called the P&G memo. It's one page. 
here are the parts to it, and fill this out before we consider your decision. Folks in Boston sitting in the Hancock Tower are probably going, I think we're doing pretty well on our own. You know, there's this wow. whole thing called this razor and razor blade model, where the razor blade model means a lot of profit. I mean, obviously, it was before the disruption of Dollar Shave Club and Harry's and, and everything else that the internet of things created. But um, it was just a great experience learning from really, really professional people on what's the classical way to build a, an outstanding, iconic brand. Mm, that's awesome. So is that is that really where it started for you? Like, is that kind of the genesis of marketing where that carrot that was dangled in front of you at P&G, did that really begin the adventure in marketing for you? Or was it something even before that? Was your dad actually in the marketing world? Yeah. I, you know, look, I was, okay. you know, my father was a marketer uh, by trade. You know, before I, I got my, my own classical experience, I was dabbling. Uh, I, I spent five mm -hmm. years before business school in the, in the workforce after Notre Dame, where I went to undergrad. And uh, I worked two years in strategy consulting. I was really impressed by the brain power of the folks I, uh, I met. They were 18 times smarter than, than me. And, uh, but I learned how to build a good deck. I learned how to build a good story. I learned how to use data to tell a story. I didn't know that before. I was a hockey player. I was a hockey player and a history major. Wow. What did I know about, about the world of business other than being a consumer? I mean, at the end of the day, Jeremy, I'm a consumerist. I'm fascinated by the decisions, rational and irrational, strategic and non-strategic that consumers make about their purchase decisions. I mean, that's in the blood. I, I've been fascinated with that for a while. What makes someone's garbage Gucci? And, and so, you know, getting to work on an iconic brand like Lucky Brand Jeans and bringing that to Europe and, and then going to business school to learn how to do it right. You know, I say writing quotes because, you know, P&G has their, their way of doing it right. As an entrepreneur, that's not necessarily right for me. But learning how to do it in that way, I think, was a ground, grounding experience that I'm very, very fortunate to have had. Were there were there marketers there or or elsewhere that really kind of inspired you along the way? Maybe folks that mentored you directly, or just folks that you kind of said, "Okay, wow, whoever authored that campaign or was launching that brand kind of got your attention back then." After business school, I chose to go free to lay. I got a blue chip experience from PepsiCo, but I did it in their most entrepreneurial group. Quite humbling to come in the first couple of days and, and be working on a brand like Cheetos or a brand like Doritos established. Uh, Doritos was doing the big Super Bowl campaigns where they were asking for UGC to create campaigns. That was unheard of at the time. There was no wow. UGC. I mean, it, wow. was, it was Cindy Crawford, you know, Pepsi. I mean, it was very, very polished big ad production value, cinema, cinematic. Um, there wasn't this, you know, we're going to go out to filmmakers and we'll pay a million dollars to one. By the way, I didn't come up with that idea at all. I had no, no part of it. Uh, I just happened to sit in the same building as the folks that did. That was inspiring. I worked a lot with the sales teams at Frito-Lay. I mean, I was a commercially driven marketer. I was less interested. I mean, I like creative, but I was less interested in what got an award and, and what really pushed a business forward. I mean, that's where I started to think about myself in terms of my future path, that I wanted to be more on the commercial side of things than simply the art of the, of the trade. And, you know, work, work, working for, you know, Al Carey was the head of, of Frito-Lay. Uh, Randy Melville was the head of sales, an incredible morning basketball player. I used to wake up at six in the morning to go drive to Plano, Texas to play basketball with the sales and marketing executive. Wow. A smart career move, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, young marketers, uh, get, you know, get be seen outside of the market, outside of the business context. Be seen. Uh, personal connections do matter. 
And that allowed me to, put, to, to, to kind of go into some opportunities where I got to go on the road with the sales team and go and actually sell in at buyer meetings. Uh, I, I was on a, on a route, on a truck for a week, driving around, putting you know, Cheetos and Doritos and Lay's on shelves, working with a guy who made 15 bucks an hour, uh, learning about what it, was, what it was really like. I want to ask you about that. Yeah, I mean, because certainly, look, you, you, you've got the background in marketing. Now you're spending, you know, you're spending time with sales folks. It's this, you know, age old conversation around sales and marketing aligning. I'd love to kind of talk through your experience and perspective in that even kind of into today. It aligns when things are working. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Success, success <laughs> somewhat breeds success. What's more interesting is if something's not working. Mm-hmm. Give you an example is, is there was an initiative from PepsiCo back in the day, and it still exists today, I'm sure, is to provide better for you options, healthier options. It's interesting to see a snack company think about that. I mean, it's the right thing to do, obviously, for humanity. But it somewhat defeats the purpose of why consumers are choosing snacks to begin with, which is, in my point of view, comfort, uh, respite, reward, you know, I'll sacrifice later, I'll snack now. And if you're a sales team measured on, if you're commission-based or whether you're measured on volume or velocity or whatever the core metrics of a lot of sales organizations are, that's great and all. But if you want to sell baked lays versus lays, I'm sure it's a 15x, 20x, 50x velocity difference. And it means dollars back in my pocket. I'm sorry, my friend, your corporate initiative is some, is some you know, some part of me. I'm not going to do it. Or I'm interested mm. in doing it only if it doesn't take money out of my own pocket. You know, this, the, this, I listen to salespeople talk about marketers as ideological thinkers. That was them, their nice frame phrase for it. Ideological. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or it's nice and all that you're spending all those millions and about millions of dollars on TV commercial. Why don't you just give me some more trucks and some more employees? I mean, it was interesting, the trade-offs. And as a CEO, I think about, I mean, my job is managing trade-offs. That's it. That's, that's the number one name of the game is managing trade-offs. Marketers and salespeople don't necessarily see eye to eye on how to prioritize resources. And that's where mm-hmm. uh, good integrated groups like Frito-Lay, uh, like other companies, uh, at the end of the day, um, have to put the, the right resources in place to be successful. And that means building a good brand, but, but critically, that means being commercially successful. You mentioned a couple of times your experience with Lucky, Lucky Brand and kind of expanding that. I think you said internationally, right? Yeah, Europe, Middle East, and Russia. Yeah. So... You know, you mentioned that a couple of times. So I'm just curious, why was that so formative for you? And are there things that you are still gathering and, you know, experience from and even today at Aloha, even a different type of brand, but. It was formative for me in that I had no effing idea what I was doing. There was no training program. There was no, I mean, the folks I was dealing with in LA are like, hey, you seem like a cool guy. You know, you respect what we built. Uh, you're seven, 8,000 miles away. Please don't screw it up and God bless. That that was the extent of the the mentoring. Wow. Wow. No, I learned a lot there. I mean, it was learning by doing. It was um, I learned what not to do. I launched the brand in Belgium. It's not the sexiest of European countries uh, to launch a denim brand. Uh, you could say, why not Italy? Why not France? Why not Spain? Which is where actually some of the most iconic denim brands had come from. But we launched in Belgium because we happened to have a franchise owner that had a store open in Antwerp. Not the best rationale to launch there, but but that's what we did. I, I quickly came into a positioning problem right away. I mean, the first time I'd learned positioning, Jeremy, it was 2003 and America had just bombed Iraq. We were just invading Iraq. Uh, uh, being an American in Europe at that time was not exactly popular. Uh, my last name gave me somewhat of a, of a 
an ability to, to disguise myself as a fake Canadian. Uh, but quickly, I had a positioning problem. We were not an American denim brand. We couldn't be an American denim brand. So I changed us to an, into a Californian denim brand. It's hard to argue with California. It's the Beach Boys. It's rock and roll. It's 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 laissez faire. It's surfing. It's you know. It's there's a lot. There's so much positivity from a branding standpoint in California. That's what we became. Californian denim. We changed everything and made it all about L.A. and California. There was not a single mention about America, the Stars and Stripes, or the USA. Interesting. And 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 that was a, that was a big deal, uh, a big change. But at, at the end of the day, it allowed the it allowed the consumer to say, huh, you know, I'll, I'll learn more. What about localization? connected to that, right? If, if, you, if you're going into these other markets globally, you're bringing a new brand where localization is important, you know, and how you're positioning it. Were you thinking about that then when you're launching into new markets that aren't, aren't, aren't the US? Because if you stick with this California, hey, we're a California brand, that's what we are. Was that the play over top of localizing, you know, marketing messages to, to folks in different areas and regions? Or was it, was it different? You know, in that category, it was more about the image than it was about localization. It, it was less about we're from here, we understand you. Uh, it was more we are bringing something to you of benefit and value. Okay, it's different in the food business here in the United States. Just switching gears, it's yeah. Here, it's it's a it's about American manufacturing. I mean, Chobani is a perfect example of celebrating American manufacturing, even to the design of the cafe in New York City, which is if you don't know that there's a physical representation of the brand in New York City where the founder and the folks involved uh, designed the materials of the building to represent aspects of American exceptionalism about manufacturing, the American farms, uh, transparency, uh, premium ingredients, but localized, right? Localized from, from folks folks uh, that you want to support. At Lucky Brand Jeans, that was not part of it. It was, we were selling an image and an idea. I guess that's about why it depends on what product you're marketing. And whether you're going to be image-based or whether you're going to be purpose-led or whether you're authenticity, whether it's an ingredient story. I mean, the great thing about marketing is uh, you can make your own story. With your time at Chobani, were there some big challenges you kind of came into having to overcome at your time there? You mean other than the fact that every CPG company and their mother was spending millions and millions and millions of dollars to knock our legs out from underneath us? I mean, mm, that's, that. a good, that's a good place to start. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, not being able to be in stock because your demand has outstripped the entire capacity of your New York-based plant. I mean, having to grow an organization that, you know, there was no marketing organization. It was, it was a group of people in service of a founder uh, as opposed to, which is awesome, but it, you have to set up kind of what is a brand organization? What is your brand marketing going to be? There were all kinds of challenges, but there were tons of opportunities because you were winning uh, and the consumer was interested in learning more. So was, was, was team building a big part of when you stepped in there? Because you were there over two years. And were you also, when you initially started, part of building a team there? Sounds like there wasn't a lot of stakeholders in the marketing. I hired the whole team. Uh, okay. Uh, I brought in the whole team. Uh, brought in a gentleman named Mike Messersmith, who now is the North American president at a brand called Oatly. Brought in a veteran of vitamin water, a guy named Matt Sherman, who's an incredible marketer who is, is now uh, the head of CMO of Hansenbrook Farms. Jessica Loria, who's the head of marketing at GoPuff. Uh, Josh Dean, who was at Swell and at Axe and a bunch of other really places. I mean, a talented group of people, just really, really talented. Yeah. And I pulled them from all over the place, uh, different industries, different functions. Some are agencies, some are brands, some are bigger brands, smaller brands. A guy named Scott Backo is now looking at Krispy Kreme down at uh, 
down in uh, Charlotte. I mean, there's all kinds of really, really exceptional people that you put together in, in one group and you build a culture around, around supporting each other and, and, and building something special. That's awesome. So you went from, I think it was the Chobani, then Under Armour. Was Under Armour after Chobani? Under Armour was before. Uh, before okay, before. I got coached off to Chobani from Under Armour. Okay. Let's talk about that experience. Just curious. Obviously, another another big brand, another kind of interesting run around the track of marketing and, and stuff you did there. What's some of the things you did at Under Armour? Things that stick out, maybe a story or two that resonates? I mean, Under Armour was a sub-billion dollar brand at the time. It was, I mean, Kevin Plank, I mean, it, it was the anti-Nike. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I fit the bill for a couple of reasons there because I was a former athlete. I was, I was classically trained, which Under Armour was, was largely an internal creative shop at the time. There wasn't marketing. They had some really exceptional marketers there, like Adrian Lofton, who uh, was at Nike and Levi's. And I think she just left a bit of Google. Exceptional. Under Armour was a challenger brand. And it was an in the in the face kind of brand. It, you know, part of the, the the idea was Nike was saying at the time that everyone was an athlete, and Under Armour was like, "No, if you're not elite, then don't wear us." And so what that created was it was you wanted every 16 year old kid at the bus stop in a big logo Under Armour hoodie because that kid wanted to be the starter on the high school football team. He didn't want to be just some an average athlete. He wanted to be elite. And at the same time, you had some real commercial challenges, right? You know, the, the size of, of, of the tight t-shirt business is like this. The size of the cotton business is like this. How do you get into the cotton business when you've been telling the entire audience for five years that cotton is the enemy? Mm-hmm. Hey, Jeremy, it was on the friggin' walls. Cotton is the enemy. It was on the walls of the building. And part of the challenge that I was, I was on a team that came up with the differentiation strategy was was repositioning and repurposing that. So the story goes like this. So cotton is a $12 billion marketplace at the time. And you wanted to be in it. Nike has all those $25 cotton t-shirts. So Under Armour has to be the position themselves as the brand of performance. So the issue wasn't really with cotton itself. It was the issue that cotton didn't perform. So Under Armour, the innovative brand that it is, and it was, and it always should be, found out, figured out, cracked the code on how to make cotton perform. Okay. All right. So now you're thinking, okay, so there's an angle there. And so you have two strands. One's hydrophilic, one's hydrophobic. One loves water, one hates water. You do all bunch of performance testing. I don't know what it was, whether it was real or not, but it sort of looked good on, on tape. And then you get some of your biggest athletes, guys like Tom Brady, Julio Jones, Michael Phelps, Lindsey Vaughn, you know, average athletes in their own right. And you say, we're going to put these folks at the front forefront of this campaign to make cotton a big, big commercial driver for the business. And it worked. It really worked. It expanded the brand's wow. horizon outside of just tight T-shirts. And then you got into other, uh, other categories where Nike was really dominant, like shoes and accessories and other kinds of stuff to make Under Armour a bigger player. And I was just, I was just one part of a team there. It was certainly not the, the person. Um, but that was a big, big challenge to try to compete against the behemoth that Nike is. When, when, when did you start thinking about, okay, I want to be a CEO? When, when, when did that occur to you as something that was going to be in, your, in a reality for you? Because you shifted from marketing to now being a CEO, which is, which is amazing. But when did that start for you with like, that's where I'm going? Um, watching my father, who was a CEO. I was probably nine or 10 years old. And I was, he took me to Japan. Uh, and, and I watched him give speech and, and get translated and you know, I watched him run companies. He was uh, he was uh, the CEO of Liz Claiborne. 
the fashion company, uh, and then he was the chairman of Campbell Soup. I watched the impact that CEOs have over the overall scope of a, of a company's fortunes. And, I, and I've said before, is having a brand is important. Having a hot brand is important. But if you don't have the sustainability of a business that can keep up with that brand, it's a short-term venture. Right. And, and like mm-hmm. the opposite, mm-hmm. you can't just have a business that doesn't have a brand because you just tapped out your potential. It's a, it's a symbiotic relationship. So, no, I, I think I wanted to be a CEO. I wanted to have the most impact across, across multiple functions. I was curious about more things than just the, the, the storytelling itself. I wanted to know where the product came from. I wanted to know, you know, how do you do business in China? I wanted to see about trucking routes across Chicago. I mean, like there were more things I was interested in. And, and as I got higher and higher in terms of levels of responsibility, I was able to be exposed to more and more holistic decisions. And then again, watching great founders, watching Daniel Lovetsky at Kind shepherd a company from nothing into something that Mars has to pay billions of dollars for while building a brand in a, in a purpose-led business. You get nothing but respect for people like that who do it the right way. And so being a CEO was the most impact. And so that's what I, wanna, what I wanted to be. Do you find that you're, because of your marketing background, you kind of go back into the tactical or the strategic areas of marketing more so because you have the marketing background? No, um, I trust my I trust my team, my people. I mean, the job of any good CEO is I think is to empower is to empower uh, with responsibility, accountability, and responsibility. I was told by an old proctor, an old Frito Lay uh, colleague of mine, that if you're behind plan, it's my business. If you're above plan, it's your business. Mm. Having a good plan and then and then letting people and giving them enough rope to, to to go hang themselves, I think, is an important characteristic of leadership. Oh, look, I, I can speak the marketing language. I'm still fascinated sure. by the consumer. I love packaging. Uh, I'm I'm adamant about putting a good product out and great food and great drink. Uh, we won't make any sacrifices on our way to greatness. But no, I, I'm not tactically into the, into the marketing of it. Uh, holistically, uh, I'm very much interested in the differentiation. Like we talked about at Gillette or at Under Armour or anywhere else, it's how do you uh, to set yourself apart from others while making yourself very much in the mindset of what a consumer wants to give yourself the most opportunity for trial. And if your product's good, a lot of repeat. So what what was the the connection to the interest in Aloha? I mean, a guy like you, the background's there. I mean, amazing pedigree. You can pretty much go anywhere you want. You can work at any brand. You can help any kind of CPG, D2C brand. You could launch your own. Why in 2017 did you join as CEO, kind of totally overhaul this brand? Because to me, a guy like you, again, could have really, could have checked off the box anywhere. And so I'm curious why that got your attention. Why Aloha? Once again, Jeremy, you're way too kind. (laughs) I think a good deal of humility is important in a CEO because there's many, much more that I don't know uh, than I do know, but I'll be damned that I'm going to figure it out. And I surround myself with people with the same mindset. Uh, it's that hustle. I saw that at Under Armour. I saw that at Chabon. I mean, I've seen that everywhere. Every company I've been a part of is that hustle. When I recruit for people, I recruit for intellectual horsepower. I recruit for uh, passion for the brand and the food, but I recruit for hustle. So from the outside looking in, like, what did you notice with Aloha that you were like, okay, uh, there's something here? Yeah, look, I was following plant-based. I've been following plant-based and better food. I, look, I've always wanted to be a part of better food. Uh, at Frito-Lay, we didn't make people healthier. We made them happier. Uh, I'd like to do both. Uh, I mean, I mean, great. I'd like to do both. I've been part of the food business, which is very dynamic, very, you know, great categories, you know, was, isn't a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's shelter and then food. 
you know, everyone in the, in the population needs to eat. It's a question of what are they eating? So, you know, there's a market thing. I mean, I was, I was never interested in price point brands. I was never interested in categories that were really small. I couldn't get myself wrapped, like, excited by healthcare or, or some kinds of service industry technology. Or if the consumer didn't, wasn't really passionate or have the ability to be passionate about something, I couldn't get myself passionate about it. And if I can't wake up passionate about an opportunity, a brand, a category, I shouldn't be in it. So I've been following plant-based. I've been following organic. You know, look, sugar is a big enemy. We all want it because it tastes good. There's a lot of things I want. The pandemic was great for my liquor consumption. Uh, doesn't mean I should have it. But um, I saw a lot of that, the kind of the core muscle tissue and, and bones, bone structures, what I call it, uh, at, at Aloha. It, it had existed before. It was a previous iteration. It was this better. It was this company that did nine or 10 different things. It had a great website called aloha.com. Pretty good intellectual property right there. But it wasn't executing. And it was trying to do too much too soon. And, uh, and at the end of the day, it just wasn't successful. And so with a couple investors, in effect, I just took over the whole thing. We brought it down to its studs. We changed everything about the product. We got rid of tons of product categories. We changed the team completely, got the hell out of New York City. And we, we started building it from the ground up. And that meant changing the distribution footprint, making it a digital first company, uh, as its namesake, as Aloha.com should be, and then focusing on a couple of product categories where I thought we could really win, that were big enough, and that I saw market opportunities in. And then, you know, go from there. Hmm. I know this is a, AI is a big one in, in all marketing really right now, but I'm curious, you know, because it seems like DCs have taken this approach that was pioneered by by SaaS companies, right? And then really applied it to these kind of traditional goods and services things. They, they're using first-party data to understand their customers with exceptional clarity, right? And contextual like visibility. And then you're able to kind of tailor message based on those insights. And DTCs have taken this approach and they're doing it really well. Did you do that in the initial stages? Did you figure out that was what was already, you know, in some ways being done successfully in other DC brands? Um, no. I didn't. And the, there's two reasons I didn't do it. One is the product wasn't good enough yet. And if, if you don't have the opportunity to get a high percentage of repeat, then you really shouldn't try to get a, get a high percentage of trial. You have to make sure you walk before you run. That was a problem with the old version pre-Brad of Aloha is that their appetite was a little bit more than they could actually bite off. And so having patience, uh, prioritizing, and getting the getting the product really right it goes back to Procter and Gamble. We started the conversation, right, Jeremy? I mean, if if you don't have that that right, uh, then everything else is just largely academic. Uh, number two is I didn't have the team in place. I didn't have a, a team of digital experts uh, that I trusted. I wouldn't ha have been able to speak the language and defer to them and say, "Look, here's the commercial and brand goals. What's the five ways we should go after it and try to uh, try to achieve it?" I didn't have that then. Uh, I started to get that in 2019. And so, uh, you know, I've been this at this for four years now, man. And uh, the first year and a half was just getting getting the, the bones right, uh, and then it was a year of of building the team uh, and making sure that we could deploy assets uh, thoughtfully. And, and then it's been the last year and a half has been all growth. You talk about AI. We for the last year and a half we're starting to use AI. Obviously, data is king, but you got to know what to do with it. You got to have people that know what to do with it. Segmentation is a big thing for us. Uh, attitudinal groups. I mean, you're running, you're running a race, and there's no right way to run it. 
but you got to have people in, in place and you got to have tools and so forth that are simplistic enough to drive, uh, but dynamic enough to accelerate. Can you talk a little bit about personalization and how Aloha is kind of playing in that? I mean, consumers are expecting brands to really anticipate their needs and then serve these really relevant suggestions uh, even before the shopper makes contact, yeah. right? So it seems like the demand for personalization is very real, not going away. How do you tackle that at Aloha? Look, I think you got to know who you are as a brand. What do you do better than everyone else? What audiences do you serve? You start from your from an inside out standpoint saying, what do I bring? And then you say, okay, who are the audiences that would most benefit from my product or service? You try to figure out where they spend the most of their time. Again, consumers don't change behavior. I mean, pandemic was crazy, right? So everyone's changing. But at the same time, there's a reason why I go to ESPN every morning. I've been going up for 30 years. Does that mean that there's better sites for me for what I want? Maybe, but I'm a creature of habit to some degree. Uh, but no, audiences that, that most resonate with it. And then you, you try to figure out messaging and cadence that, that works. The moment you get an opportunity to get someone into your funnel, it's your responsibility to convert them into a heavy user. And you do that through great product experience, uh, white glove service, especially as a DTC or digital oriented brand, white glove service. If someone's got a problem or an issue with your product, you address it. Whether it's a real or perceived problem, you address it and you satisfy the consumer. That doesn't mean you do anything that's crazy, but the consumer is at the end of the day, the, the core of the company. Yes, we're an employee owned company. And so I, we serve each other, but we serve the consumer. Uh, and data is just a good facilitator to try to get the right message to the right person at the right time, which if we go all the way back to, to the beginning of the conversation, is at the nature, is at the core nature of the season piece. You don't want to spend your, your time and energy on someone uh, that has really no inclination to adopt your product as their own and make it a favorite brand. Is there a play further down the road? Because I've seen some of these DDC brands go into the retail space and open up a store or, you know, or some version of that. Is, do you, is that in, in the growth strategy foreseeable future for Aloha or is it always going to be this DDC play? There's two things here. One is, is whether it's your own store or whether it's your, your in stores where consumers are already, consumers most like your core target demographic are already shopping. It's already part of their behavior set. So I'll give you the two, I'll give you a couple of points on that. At Chobani, the manifestation of the store was a vision of the founder to bring to life outside of a grocery store, the, the brand values and the entrepreneurial nature of the company. I'm not going to reveal what, what the P&L looked like or didn't look like for that store. Let's just say you got to be of a certain size and have certain financial wherewithal to sustain that. You'll also see brands like my friends at Casper, uh, uh, using stores as, a, as a, an opportunity to go and bring a DTC company to life and allow people to experience and touch and feel before a certain dollar ring. A mattress isn't cheap, even, even, a, you know, even a Casper mattress. It's still, a, it's not like buying a $2.50 bar or a, you know, a $3.99 Aloha drink. It's a little bit more Boku bucks, right? Uh, and so this is an opportunity for them to fulfill their commercial value while giving the consumer an opportunity to experience the brand in a physical manifestation. I don't see that in Aloha's cards right now. Uh, our brand certainly can become a, a powerful lifestyle brand. Uh, for the meantime, I'm going to satisfy myself for being the best in our category, our categories, a best as defined by the consumer. But we are in physical retail. Uh, we have great partnerships with people like Sprouts, Wegmans, Kroger. You know, we're talking to some other new accounts right now that I won't mention, but like 
the brand does need to show up, in my opinion, holistically and omni-channel. They want to buy from me in Aloha.com, God bless them. They want to buy on Amazon or Thrive Market or Vitacost or Unifresh Direct, you name it. Great. Knock yourself out. Do you want to go buy physically in a store at Harris Teeter or Wegmans? Do I, do I understand the profitability or the different end number that that business represents for me? Sure, I do. But at the end of the day, I want the consumer to choose to adopt the brand and consume the brand where they see fit. And that means that I don't have to be in control of it. I think omni-channel brands have the highest chance of brand adoption, and that provides the best commercial viability I can offer. You've been quoted saying there's an old financial term that goes, all money is great. Uh, but I think when you're trying to create a business, a brand is not enough. Can you elaborate on that for our listeners? Like how is Aloha more than just a brand? Yeah. I mean, look, there's a reason why we, we became a B Corp. It's, it's very difficult. It's, it's, like, it's like revealing your most inner secrets to someone you don't know and hoping that they come out liking you at the end. I read a stat that only 4% of companies that actually apply to become B Corps get accepted. It is a club within clubs. And that's companies that actually think that they could actually apply. There's other ones that say, no, no, we can't do that. Great, but can't do it. Becoming a B Corp was an important you know, mark in the sand for us. We changed our governance charters. We, we, we act accordingly to the values of creating business for good. But if you're going to be a purpose-led brand, which I do believe consumers appreciate and value, I believe a tie goes to the runner. You still got to have a great product. You still got to have a good price. You still got to be good position. You still got to be available. But if you can wear your wear your uh, your corporate or your company charter on your sleeve, and to show people that you're you're walking the talk, I think that's a really valuable and powerful and poignant uh, expression of a business uh, and a promise to consumers that from a two way street standpoint, we're going to uphold our part of the market. One of the core values I saw Aloha is this de- democratizing plant-based views, right? How do you feed that mantra into your overall marketing strategy? And like, how are you continuously aligning those values with the brand? Well, look, we're not trying to be something we're not, but we're also not dabbling in this. Like plant-based is all we do. Like I don't have a this line and a that line, right, not one right. or the other. Uh, as a small company, you got to choose. If I was a big, big company, I'd have to have my hands in you know, I have to be, you know, be involved in various uh, different areas because I just have to get growth. I have to get organic growth. We're at a size uh, and within a preciousness standpoint, all we do is plant-based. At the same time, there's a lot of people because it's a hot buzzword. I mean, chicken nuggets are becoming plant-based. Does that mean they're necessarily better? Plant-based this, plant-based that. I mean, there's no standard of identity. It's like natural. The word natural doesn't mean anything. So anything can technically be plant-based, I guess. But they're not all created equally. I mean, the fact that we don't use artificial sugars or sweeteners, I don't like them. I don't even use stevia leaf. I don't like it. You know why? Because it's processed with ethanol and, and alcohol. Yeah, it started as a leaf. That doesn't mean the end product is. So there's a lot of choices we make in terms of what goes into our product and our food. And that choicefulness, we, we bring that forward in our messaging. We talk about being the only plant-based company that is 100% certified organic. That's a B Corp, that's B Corp certified. It's good marketing to, to, to try to differentiate yourself. It also just happens to be true, even better. Mm. With hot spaces in general, the people on the margins are going to try to get into space. It's smart business for them. That does not mean it's the most authentic. And in our case, you know, our advantage is that, is that we're walking the talk. And the challenge is how do you get that message across 
in a very cluttered environment. Just wait till January when everyone's going to be back to New Year's resolutions and exactly guaranteed plant based is going to be like shouted from the rooftops. How is the kind of events? I'm sure Aloha is involved with sponsoring events or being involved with certain events and kind of getting getting out there. And there's obviously a big shift with live events in the past year. And some of that's starting to come back now. And I'm curious, just kind of considering your event strategy, has that changed, shifted in the past year and change? Yeah, totally. The world went from sampling at Whole Foods and handing out products at Spartan Racing and sponsoring uh, uh, fitness clubs. Um, the pandemic has been incredibly disruptive. Our category, the categories we play in have been down significantly uh, during the pandemic. People have not been out experiencing life. I wonder why. Please, everyone, if you're not, please get vaccinated. If you don't do it for yourself, do it for others. It's important. Uh, this category will not rebound completely until Americans have the freedom to go off and, and, and live their lives without fear and in the same way we, we, we enjoyed before. Field marketing and event strategy have been shut down completely because no consumer wants to receive a sample from someone they don't know. Even though it's packaged correctly and it's safe and it's all this stuff, it's just, nope, pass, next. So we've had to do other things. We've had to uh, use all, all of our digital marketing capabilities to get people to, uh, we've encouraged them to, to buy trial packs from us for at cost, actually below cost. I mean, I'm calculating my CAC, right? If it's an ex- affordable or acceptable, if it's an acceptable CAC, uh, and I can offset uh, and, and send someone four bars for a certain price using social, using uh, influencers, affiliates, et cetera. I mean, it's going to be more targeted than me handing out products to you and your friends at a gym. Um, so certainly the digital first environment, we, we've adopted that wholeheartedly. That won't change. Um, as the, the market reopens, we are going to be strategically, we are strategically engaging with areas Ski slopes is an example, Um, certain gyms, um, passion points, I call them, passion points. We sell to a couple NFL teams. I can't name them, uh, but we sell to to the teams because it's it's perfect for for those NFL athletes competing in the beginning of the season on Thursday. The long-winded answer to your very short question was uh, absolutely the the, how you deliver a first product experience has changed. Uh, We've taken it from a digital first approach, and and we're going to start towing the water as the market rebounds into other areas of life where consumers are looking for good experiences. Hmm. Are there kind of untapped opportunities that have kind of revealed themselves in the kind of new world that we're living in uh, for the brand? Totally. If you had a thousand products, if you were a distributor of food service, Jeremy, and your business was down by 70%, what did you do? You cut assortment, right? So all those legacy brands that really have no right to exist anymore, other than they've been existing for 30 years. I mean, I'm not going to name the brands, but you know, who needs 25 grams of sugar in a protein bar? Not I. The distributors have cut back. That provides an opportunity for someone with good positive momentum like me, a great product storyline in terms of what the consumer is looking for, a responsible sales force that's able to deliver, a dynamic supply chain that exists despite all the supply chain worries that are out there because we're, we're pretty locked into it can't have a business if you can't f- fulfill the product, right? And the opportunity exists because where it was a thousand, now it's 300. Bring in Aloha is our point. Bring us in and then uh, mm-hmm. we'll support it. So uh, food service is big. And then uh, for offline retail categories that haven't changed their shelves in two years because they don't have the labor for it, the category has been down. So they're focused on cereal and ice cream. You know, at some point in time, your assortment becomes stale. And again, bring in the fastest, we're the fastest moving brand in our space. 
Like, why wouldn't you put in Aloha? We're the leader in our space. Put us in. Hmm. All this being said, Jeremy, while we're still, we're still getting better and better on digital. I mean, the AI stuff that you talked about, it's changing every day. Uh, look at what Apple and Facebook and Google are doing with privacy. And I mean, if I would have gone to school, if I'd be in school now, I wouldn't have majored in history. I would have figured out some way to monetize technology. I missed the boat, man. But that's kind of, that's the world we live in. How do you reach the right consumer at the right place through technology? Is there a focus emphasis on international expansion now with Aloha? There is not. I don't okay. believe you can execute it. If I don't believe you can execute it well, I don't want to do it. You don't want to poison okay. it well. I don't consider Canada international. Again, as two generations removed from Canada, I think I can say that without offending anyone. You know, I was, I was rooting for the Maple Leafs, even though they just don't do well. So, um, no, we, we, we want to have a business in Canada, uh, certainly. Uh, I think there's a lot of commonalities. I get calls from distributors. Uh, there'd be some logical fits in the EU. We own our trademarks, by the way, there as well. So from a business standpoint, we are ready to go. I don't have the bandwidth and, and nor the resources to do it well. And if I can't do something well, I'm not going to do it. Got it. So maybe in the future? Why not? Possibly? The world, okay. the world yeah. deserves yeah. better organic plant-based food. Like if democratizing plant-based in America is where we stop, well, we're just, we're, we're not living up to our potential. So how does, how does Aloha continue to scale over the next few years? What are you kind of focused on rest of this quarter into the next year? Thoughtfully. I mean, we've gotten this point of success by prioritizing, not biting off more of the apple than we can chew, but when we find success to go in hard and fast. I believe in our existing product ranges of bars and drinks uh, and powders. There are logical extensions of that we could obviously do. Consider me a little bit old school, like Jack Welch, in terms of being number one or number two in your category, your subcategory, before you move on from a position of strength where you have momentum. You know, we're focused on great execution. And that means taking advantage of your opportunities. Um, That means pushing the limits to some degree. But just like we do creatively, I'm a big believer in A-B testing. And if something's not working, don't do it. We're in big spaces with big competitors. I mean, I think we're maybe one of the largest independents that's left. Everyone else is big CPG. I love competing against big CPG. I'm not afraid of it. I remember from Chobani days, Kind was independent. I mean, I remember it. I remember going yeah. Under Armour Nike. I'm not afraid of that stuff. And you got a better product. That doesn't, doesn't mean I don't respect what they're doing. And they have this sure. size and scale and resources to come after us. But at the end of the day, I think we're a little bit, little bit we're pretty nimble. And, uh, and we got a great product. And, and the number one job is to get, as my head of sales says, she says, uh, we got to get more people to meet us. I like it. That's awesome. So if, if we host a, uh, a little panel in the next few months, maybe next year with you and two other CEOs or just marketing leaders that you'd want to have a conversation with, who would those two people be? I, I couldn't begin to tell you, man. There's so many brands that I respect in their space that have done, they've done one thing differently. And that and that's been the biggest impact to uh, uh, to shake up shake up the status quo. Again, I love what what Casper did. I love what Oatly has done. I'm a big believer in 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 in, in DTC brands. I love Warby Parker. I mean, there's just there's a lot mm-hmm. of really good just good, just people just willing to put themselves out there to do something differently. But again, not to forget that the consumer at the end of the day, not ego, not CEOs, not podcasts, not what. The consumer votes on what's successful or unsuccessful. And the moment you take your eye off the ball and you think you made it, someone's right there up behind you to steal and say, uh-uh, I can do it better. 
And I don't want to be that guy. And so we are uh, we are focused on on ourselves, and, and we're um, we we think that if we we do it that way, we're going to be successful. Cool. Are you ready for the lightning round? Yes. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. We bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com/slash/marketing. Question number one: Lightning round. What is your favorite Aloha product? Yeah, you're supposed to love all your children equally, right? Um, <laughs> I love this guy. I love the chocolate mint bar. It tastes like a like a thin mint. So good. Ooh, that's not, now you're hitting. That's a personal favorite of mine. So I can try that. Put it in the freezer uh, or the fridge. Ooh, in jail, okay. bam, bam. Okay, nice. Um, there's a great article online about your love of hockey. And how your daughters actively play? Yeah. Um, which Which one is the best hockey player, and can they beat you yet? I can't answer that question, man. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they're not interested in anything that their dad does. But but they, this is the internet is like goes on forever. Uh, they're all really really good. My oldest daughter's a center. My middle daughter is a really mean defenseman, and my youngest is a goalie. We had a daddy daughter game, and the younger goalie beat me. And so I think she's wow. the best one right now. Nice. Uh, if you weren't in marketing. What would you be doing? Uh, I'd be an actor. Mm, okay. Uh, what's one thing you do for fun outside of work? Uh, whatever my wife tells me. Best answer in the world. Uh, last one, best advice for a first-time CEO? Um, don't think you know all the answers. Mm. CEOs can put it in a pedestal. And uh, I think ego is a killer of a lot of dreams. Be humble. Dude, you killed it today. So fantastic. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.